You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. And with that, if I could ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of First Timothy. We're going to begin tonight at chapter 2. And hopefully we'll make it through the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening. I'm very blessed and impressed to see you all out here tonight on a night when traffic is difficult and that is in fact Valentine's Day. Uh, If you were wondering if I was going to do a special message tonight on Valentine's Day, uh, I'm not. But if I were, this is what I would say. I would point out, first of all, that St. Valentine was a Christian who lived in Rome in the third century, Uh, that he was a martyr who died bravely for the faith, and reportedly he died on February 14th, 269 AD. I would also point out what a great gift romantic love is that God gives to humanity in general and to his people in particular. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gift that God gives us, and especially that in Jesus Christ, we can receive this gift and enjoy it in a better and deeper way than ever. I mean, I'd tell you about how, what a blessing it is in my own life, and, and what a blessing it is for my wife, Ingalil, that God has brought us together and given us the gift of each other over these many years. What, what a blessing, what a gift it is, romantic love from God. Uh, the other thing, though, I would point out is that like any gift of God, romantic love is often made into an idol. And this is a constant tendency in our culture. And it often happens among Christians as well. Sometimes Christians who are single and not presently involved in a romantic relationship They're made to feel inferior or second class. And sometimes as well, sin is given an excuse in the name of romantic love. And sometimes it's forgotten that even though while romantic love is a gift from God, so also, very specifically stated by the New Testament, so also is singleness. So while we remember the dangers of idolatry when it comes to romantic love, Nevertheless, we'll receive it as God's gift and we happily say, happy Valentine's Day. So that's what I would preach on if I was going to preach a sermon tonight on Valentine's Day. Leaving all that behind, now as we take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 this evening, I do just want to remind you what we're looking at here. We're looking at a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his young colleague Timothy. And when we say young, maybe at this time in his life, Paul was in his late 50s or 60, early 60s. Uh, Timothy was maybe in his late 20s, early 30s. There was definitely a generational gap between them. But Timothy wasn't a kid. He wasn't a teenager. And he was a man who had proven himself in ministry many times before. Paul had given Timothy the great responsibility of carrying on the work in the city and region of Ephesus. Now, today you would find Ephesus on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. But uh, back then, this was the Roman province of Asia Minor, or Asia the Lesser. And, and it was, it was a, a large, prosperous, important region in the Roman Empire. Well, what you need to understand about this is Paul left Timothy behind in Ephesus to carry on the work there, and the work that he called him to carry on was much more than simply pastoring a congregation, even being the pastor over a large congregation. What Timothy had responsibility for was a work of God over an entire region, You see, let's remember what the book of Acts says about the work of Ephesus. And I'll just read to you two verses. Acts chapter 19 verse 10 says this, And this continued for two years 
so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Do do you hear what's said there? It's a little bit of hyperbole there, but you get the point. All who dwelt in Asia, that is, that part, that Roman province, everybody who lived in that Roman province heard the word of the Lord Jesus. There was a massive outpouring of God's spirit upon this work in Ephesus, and many, many people were added to the faith. So much so that it says, just 10 verses later, this is Acts chapter 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Man, that's like a dream verse for any pastor or person working in ministry. You want to see the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail. So I just want you to understand, Timothy wasn't the pastor of like one single congregation, even a large congregation. Even though I'm sure he did pastoral work with the congregation, it was more so that he had responsibility for dozens or scores, maybe even hundreds of small churches spread out over a very large area. And he needed to make sure that these churches did their work right and honorably before God. So, after the first chapter, which we saw last week, where the main emphasis in the first chapter was really stating to Timothy the reasons why he was supposed to remain there in Ephesus, even though perhaps he might not rather be there, now starting in chapter 2, Paul's going to give some specific instruction to Timothy about how to have church services happen under his supervision. So that brings us to uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 where we read, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now the larger context here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is of the public gatherings, worship services, we might call them, of God's people together. We find this very plain by verse 8 that we'll get to later on. But the idea is Paul saying, first of all, first in priority when I speak to you, Timothy, I want you to understand that I'm giving you instructions on how Christians should have their meetings together. And what I find interesting about this is that Paul is obviously not laying out a liturgy. He's not laying out a form of service. He's not saying, sing this many songs, have this many prayers, have a sermon that's this long. And He's not laying out an order of service. He's obviously writing about some things that are on his mind about what Timothy must be mindful of. Maybe these were things that were controversial among the Ephesians at this time. Maybe there were points that needed special instruction. But Paul's not laying out an entire thing. He's saying, these are some things I want you to remember, Timothy. Now, when God's people gather together, I find it fascinating that when you take God's people from just about every kind of tradition, every kind of denomination, every kind of historical flow of true Christianity, I'm not talking about those who would be out of the boundaries of true Christianity, but of true Christianity, back from the days of the apostles, they basically had the same components of their gatherings together. They would come together for worship, and specifically worship in song. They would come together and they would pray. They would come together and they would hear from God's word. And they would come together and enjoy some kind of community and mutual support. Sometimes, although there wasn't any express regular schedule, but sometimes connected with the Lord's table. The, the, uh, the bread and the cup of communion. This is what God's people have been doing together for 2,000 years. And different traditions do it in different ways. Different traditions do it with different emphasis on on different aspects of that formulation. But that's been the basic idea from the very beginning. Here Paul is saying, what I want you to understand is when you come together, think about this as you pray. I exhort that first of all supplications, I'm reading verse 1 again, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. First of all, notice the variety of terms he uses for prayer. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. 
These describe the wide categories of our own communication with God. These are different kinds of prayer, and each one of them can have a role when God's people come together. There's supplication. What's supplication? Supplication is simply asking God to do something. When you say, Lord, bless our gathering, you're making a supplication to God. Then the next one is prayers. Prayers is simply a broad word. It's covering basically all of our communication with God. Then he mentions intercessions in verse 1. That refers to the kind of requests that we make on behalf of other people. As we pray, there should be notice given to the needs of others and not only our own needs. Although there's nothing wrong, please, brothers and sisters, hear me on this. There's nothing wrong with bringing your own needs to God. Sometimes Christians feel guilty about that. And if we were really holy, we would only pray prayers of intercession. Don't think that way at all. There's nothing wrong with you bringing your own request to God. But of course, Pray on behalf of others too. Intercede for others. And then finally he lists here in verse 1, giving of thanks, which is another essential aspect of our walk with God. How important is it for us to have a heart full of gratitude towards God for all that he's given us? So he says, when you pray, it should be marked by all these different aspects and that you pray, this is a very important point here, verse 1, look at the last couple words, that they be made for all men. This tells us whom we're to pray for with these various means of prayer. <coughs> Who? All men. Everybody. And when he says all men there, I don't think he's referring to just the masculine. I think he's referring to all of humanity. You've never met somebody who doesn't need prayer. You've never met somebody who couldn't benefit by prayer, from prayer in some way. Now, most Christians find it easy to pray, example, for your family. You think about family that you pray for all the time, and that's a good thing. You should pray for your family. You think it's easy to pray for your friends, your loved ones. But let this just sort of hit your mind here that we're to pray for all men. Now, I don't think that means you open up the telephone book and start praying for people. That's an archaic thing, isn't it? Telephone book? Who has a telephone book anymore? But you get what I mean by that. It's not just getting a big as list as possible and just mentioning the names, although there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. The idea is, is that who might you be tempted to not pray for? Think about the people you'd say, well, I don't want to pray for them. Well, then you just pray for them. Pray for the people that you would instinctively say, I don't want to pray for them. I mean, did not Jesus tell us that we should pray for our enemies? So pray for them. That politician that you really don't like, I'm not going to ask you to mention any names, nothing out loud here. That politician you really don't, do you pray for them? That person who committed that crime, a horrific crime, and you could fill in the blank as to which one it is, things are happening all the time. Pray for them. That, That leader that you respect, pray for them. We should pray for those who annoy us or seem to be against us. Each of these fall into the category of all men. And here's another thought. To pray for all men also means to pray evangelistically. I'll never forget something that E.M. Bounds wrote. E.M. Bounds is a man who wrote many brief but powerful books on prayer. And and one line from E.M. Bounds' books says this. He says, that it's more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. In other words, if you really want to be successful evangelistically, the most important thing you can do is pray. Now, fortunately, we don't have to choose between the two. We should really do both. But oftentimes we think only of doing one. But we should pray evangelistically that God would reach the heart of those who, who, who need help, those who, who need Jesus. And so we should pray for our friends and our loved ones who need to know Jesus, for our co-workers, for people that we have regular contact with. But let's remember this as well. To pray for all men also means to pray for your pastors, for your church, 
and to pray for those in ministries that you know and love. And there's a phrase here in verse 1 that sort of strikes me that I want to note before we go on to verse 2. He says, giving of thanks be made for all men. Isn't that interesting? To find something to give thanks for in all men. That's a challenge sometimes, isn't it? And maybe you just come down to this. Lord, I thank you that they're made in your image in some way. I don't know what, sometimes maybe it's as basic as that. But we should have our, Lord, who do you want me to pray for? Now, going on to verse 2, he, he, he gets a little more specific of the idea of all men. He says, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's very interesting. He says we should pray for kings and all who are in authority. Now, early Christians were often accused of being unpatriotic in regard to the Roman Empire, in regard to other states where they may have lived, because they openly acknowledged that Caesar was not Lord. They openly acknowledged that they had a higher allegiance than the political state. And they would yet nevertheless answer, we're not bad citizens. And one of the reasons why we're not bad citizens is we say, emperor, we pray for you. We pray for you. We honestly do. We're 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 not bad or unpatriotic. We don't think you're God. But we do pray for you. You know, in just in the previous verse, Paul said that we should pray for all men and give thanks for all men. And now he connects the thought with those who are in authority over us. Now look, I, I know that in today's very inflamed and divided political world that we live in now in the year 2018, it's very easy for us to to get heated up over politics and over political divides. And I get all that. But one thing that we have to understand is that government is God's gift to humanity. Romans chapter 13 spells this out. It talks about God appointing the magistrate, God appointing basically the policemen and and the military men and women who keep peace. He says, God has appointed them to help in society, to administrate justice, to punish the evildoer, and to keep order in society. Fundamentally, we need to understand that government is God's gift, and therefore all the more reason why we should pray for those in government, why we should pray for those in authority. I remember reading some time ago one of the writings of an early church leader named Tertullian. Tertullian explained it like this. He said this, quote, We pray for all the emperors that God may grant them a long life, a secure government, a prosperous family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people, that the whole world may be in peace, and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every man the accomplishment of their just desires. I like that phrase. Because I can pray that for a politician. I can pray that for politicians I tend to agree with, and I can pray that for politicians that I tend to disagree with. Lord, accomplish their just desires. Now, Lord, you figure out what's just in their desires and what's not, because sometimes I think their desires are absolutely crazy. But Lord, accomplish their just desires. This idea that Christians were praying for governmental leaders is a very important aspect, going back again to the earliest days of the church. But notice why. Look at verse 2 with me again. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. There's a sense in which Christians should pray for a government and rulers 
that would simply leave us alone and let us live as Christians. What are we looking for from the government? A quiet and peaceable life. As Christians, I don't think we should look for any special favors from the government. Now, God forbid, we don't want any particular interference from the government. No, not at all. But we're not looking for particular favors. No, we want the ability to live a quiet and peaceable life and where the gospel is given the liberty to flourish, it will flourish. I find it interesting that at the time Paul wrote this, Christianity was not yet an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. At the time Paul wrote this, it was still considered to be a branch of Judaism. At the time Paul wrote this, it was very reasonable to believe that maybe the Roman government might just leave Christians alone to live their faith. But it wouldn't stay that way. Before the apostle Paul died, he would be himself executed by an agency of the Roman government, by the command of Caesar Nero himself. And the state would begin to persecute believers. What a terrible thing that was, not only for the church, but it was a terrible thing especially for the state. Now, in verses 3 and 4, he's going to talk about the goal of praying for all men. What's the goal? Well, that they'd be saved. Look at this, verses 3 and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, these are two fascinating verses, and I'm going to drill down with them in a minute, but before I drill down, let's just get the big point here. When you come together, pray. Don't forget to pray for the rulers and, and, and those around you. Pray for all people. And what should you pray for them? Pray for them that they'd get saved. Because God wants people to get saved. Isn't that a pretty fair summation of the first four verses of this chapter? But the phrasing of Paul's is very interesting here. In verse 4 he says, Who desires all men to be saved. You see, these verses have been the cause of at least some theological controversy. People say, in what sense does God desire all men to be saved? Does God look out upon all of humanity and say, it is my will that they all be saved, and at the end of it all, God's will is going to be frustrated because all humanity will not be saved? Is that how it works? I would explain it like this. From a divine perspective, we understand that there's a sense in which you cannot say that God desires all men to be saved. Not in a determinative sense. Not that God has planned for all men to be saved. Because uh, then, otherwise, men would automatically all be saved. Or God would have left an element or would I would say erased an element of human response in the gospel. God's desire for all men to be saved is conditioned by another desire within God. Because like every being, God has more than one desire. God's desire for all men to be saved is conditioned by another desire. And that's the desire to have a genuine response from all human beings. God could save every man and every woman by turning them all into robots who were saved apart from or even against their will. But God says, I won't do that. No, I want a kingdom full of willing sons and daughters. God will not simply program people to do what he wills them to do. God works upon the human nature in other ways to draw them. And so we can simply say God desires all men to be saved in the sense that the gospel is to be preached to all without reservation. We're, we're not just supposed to look at a group of people and say, all right, who are the chosen here? I'll preach to you. 
Tell me who the elect are. I'll preach to them. Forget about that, of course. Only, only weirdos would think. And by the way, there have been a few weirdos like that within the history of the church. But no, the, the, the message go out. You, you let God figure out who's chosen. You and I are to guard that God wants all to be. If you're looking to compete with God, you want these people to be saved. I'm going to bring them the message of your truth and see what you can work with in their hearts upon them. And I love how he phrases this in verse 4. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Here, salvation is clearly associated with coming to a knowledge of the truth. You cannot be rescued by God apart from some understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done to save us. I'm not saying that you have to have every theological I dotted and T crossed. That's not the idea. You don't get to heaven by, by scoring an adequate number on your theology exam. But there's a knowledge of the truth connected with God's saving work. And that knowledge of the truth is the truth that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ. As he's going to explain, starting at verse 5. He says here, verse 5, 6, and 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What a beautiful, triumphant statement Paul makes here in verse 5. And again, you can just connect the dots from the beginning of the chapter. Pray when you come together. Pray for all men and don't forget your leaders. Pray for all men because God wants all men to be saved. And how will all men be saved? They'll be saved through the one God and mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Through one mediator and one alone, the man Christ Jesus. It's as Jesus said himself in the Gospel of John. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's John chapter 14 verse 6. Isn't this just another way of explaining that essential truth? And I would say this. Not only is it plain from the scriptures that there's one mediator between God and man. And friends, I, I, need to, I need to just carry that out. And I don't mean this to be in any offensive way, although I'm sure it would be offensive to some people. But I mean, it just tells us that Buddha is not a mediator between God and man. Muhammad is not a mediator between God and man. Uh, other religious figures that you could point out through the centuries or through the ages. They, they are not the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And not only is this simply declared by the scriptures, but, but it's also just simply logical. If Jesus was at least a good and honest man, then he told the truth about who he was. I mean, a good and honest man's not going to lie about who he is. And Jesus said that he was the only way to God. Now, if he did not tell the truth at this very important point, then how can you regard Jesus as even a good or honest man, much less a prophet from God? If he was wrong at this point, then either he was a liar knowing he was wrong, or he was a lunatic thinking he was wrong, thinking he was right, but really being wrong all along. Now you see, in the modern world that we live in, where the dominant thought is that there's many roads that lead to God, and that the only really important thing is that you follow the road sincerely or with a good heart. Friends, that's a very dangerous way to think. Think about this. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who each came to God sincerely. 
Do you remember that story? The Pharisee came to God sincerely. He was sincerely proud. And he came to God in all sincerity. Believe me, he was not lacking in sincerity one bit. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like those Gentiles or like those sinners or like those weirdos or especially not like this tax collector next to me. Thank you, God. He was sincere. And then the tax collector prayed. And what did the tax collector pray? Jesus said that he would not even raise his head to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, well, God respected both of them for their sincerity. No, God said, God accepted the humble man, but he rejected the proud man. Sincerity wasn't enough. And then the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus sincerely, but he was rejected because he would not give up everything to follow Jesus. I think of going back into the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, there were two sons of Aaron named Nadab and Abihu. God's judgment came upon them because they came before God and maybe they were sincere. But God's judgment came upon them because they offended him when, he, when they came before him. Now it's a verse that I shared with you from this platform not all that long ago. Proverbs 14, 12 is very instructive here. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sincerity isn't enough. Now there's many people, especially in this very pluralistic salad bar religion, uh, and you know what we mean by salad bar religion, don't you? It's that you know you just go through and you pick from different faiths whatever you want, and you just you have it your way, and it's just your thing, and you're in control of it. In this day and age that we think of, and that's marked by that very kind of thinking, many people think that it's unfair or narrow-minded of God to have one way to salvation. But if you think that way, I would just ask you to, to examine that thought, to turn it over in your mind. I don't want to sound too dramatic about this, but th- this is the way that I've thought about it for myself. To say that God must provide another way than Jesus Christ is to say this. I look at Jesus there on the cross. There he is dying in his agony, having suffered terribly, nailed to the cross. And not only is he suffering physically, the physical suffering is almost the smallest part of the agony he endures. What Jesus really suffers on the cross is the judgment of God, the cup of God's judgment that he asked if there was any way possible that that cup be, be passed on uh, away from him. But no, there was no other way. He had to drink that cup of judgment on the cross. There he is on the cross, not only receiving such intense physical suffering, but the most unimaginable spiritual agony in the judgment that he receives from God, that cup of God's judgment. And now I come and I look at Jesus and I contemplate him there on the cross. And I I look at, I take it all in, and then I look up to heaven, and I say to God the Father, hey, that's great. For a start. But what you really got to do is you really got to make that the first of about five options that you give me, God. Do you realize how, how offensive that is? To look at what Jesus said on the cross and say, that's not enough, God. You got to do more. You got to give me that among maybe five options. And if I or you or any one of us would say that to God, God would say back and he'd say it firmly, but I'm sure he would say it in love. He'd say, I can do no more than this. Don't you understand? What I have done at the cross is the ultimate the ultimate. I can do nothing greater. I have given you the greatest demonstration of my love. 
I've given you the greatest demonstration of my sacrifice, the greatest demonstration of the depths I will go to rescue lost humanity. You, you can't ask me to do more than this. There is one mediator between God and man. And again, I've got to notice this phrase in verse 5. The man, Christ Jesus. Now, notice this. Notice the phrasing. This is all in the present tense, isn't it? It's all in the present tense. That's in the present tense when Paul wrote it. But quick Bible question here. When Paul wrote this, had Jesus already ascended into heaven? Yes, he had. Jesus was not alive in his bodily presence on the earth. But he says, there is one mediator. Not there was. There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. He's saying that Jesus is still a man. I'm fascinated by that thought. Because sometimes I've thought of Jesus' humanity as something like a jacket that he wore when he came down from heaven He put on the jacket of humanity and after he died on the cross and rose from the dead and when he ascended to heaven, he left the jacket behind. No. Seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven is a glorified man. He remains truly man and truly God in his incarnation presence for all eternity. That blows my mind. I don't quite understand it, to be honest. But Jesus Christ did not relinquish his humanity when he finished his work on earth. He remains in heaven, the man Christ Jesus. It's a remarkable, remarkable idea. And then, I can't get over this in verse 6. I'll just read it again. For there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. You know what Jesus gave? Himself. You know, you can give your time without giving yourself. You can give your money without giving yourself. You can give your opinion without giving yourself. There are some people who can even give their life without giving themselves. But Jesus wants us to give ourselves just as he gave himself. And how did he give himself? He gave himself a ransom as a payment of sins. Now, I, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to raise a question that I'm not going to answer. Because it's a, it's a fascinating theological question. That actually, when you go into the history of theology, this question has been argued about a lot in the history of theology. He gave his life a ransom for many. So everybody got that phrase? Who did he pay the ransom to? That thought has been argued about a lot in the history of Christian theology. Did he pay it to God the Father? Did he pay it to Satan? Did he pay it to somebody else? Now, I said I wouldn't answer it. I'll give you my take on that just very quickly. I'm not going to go into much depth. If, if you want to argue about it, we can talk about it later. I think that to ask the question, who did he pay the ransom to, is actually to take the text further than Paul ever intended. I, I mean, he just means as a payment. As a payment. And, and it's not as if somebody had to be bought off for us to be set free. Although, it's just some interesting thing. I'll just move on. <laughs> this great message, verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. It still should cause a smile to come to our face when we consider who God chose to be this mighty messenger to the Gentiles. He chose the guy who hated Gentiles worse than anybody. He chose this guy, the, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus, this, this guy who didn't like Gentiles. He, that's the man that God chose to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 8, 
I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, do you see basically how Paul's going back to the thought at verse 1? Does everybody get that here? Verse 8, he's basically going back to verse 1. Verse 1, he talked about prayer. And again, we see in general, especially from verse 8, in general, the context is prayer in the setting of the gatherings of God's people. When you get together, pray. Pray all kinds of prayer. Pray for people. Pray for, for leaders. Pray that they'd get saved because God wants them to be saved. And the only way they're going to be saved is through the work of Jesus Christ. So pray that they get saved. I mean, that's what we've been summarizing all thus to this point. Now in verse 8, he comes back and he says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Actually, verse 8 introduces something that leads to very significant controversy that I'm just going to barely touch on tonight, but next Wednesday we're going to dive in full bore into. Here, Paul talks about who should be leading the meetings of God's gathered people. What does he say in verse 8? I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. Now, really what that has the idea of, folks, here, it's not in every place, like every place around town. He's not saying, okay, I I want men to pray over at Stern's Wharf, I want men to pray over up on TV Hill, I want men to pray over here. No, 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 no. What, What he's talking about is in every church. In every church that, that is there, that, that, well, every church that Paul would have influence of. Paul's focus is on what the church does when it comes together for meetings. The idea is that we should be praying together as a congregation and, and that the men would take the lead at those meetings of the congregation. By the way, there's a great commentator Uh, a man named White who commentates on the Greek text here. And he says this on everywhere. He says, the directions are to apply to every church without exception. No allowance is to be made for the conditions peculiar to any locality. In other words, Paul's saying, this is what I want done in God's churches. That the men pray everywhere. When he says lifting up holy hands... That was the posture of prayer in the ancient world. You would pray by the lifting up of hands. We we traditionally fold our hands, you know, the folded hands, the locked fingers, which again, this is our tradition. I'm not saying it's a bad tradition. As I've said before, anything that gets you to let go of of your smartphone for five minutes is a good thing, so praise the Lord for that. Um, But in the ancient world, it wasn't this, it was this. And he says that the men should take the lead here. This speaks of men leading public prayer, men representing the congregation before God's throne. Again, Newport White, this Greek commentator I mentioned to you, he translates the idea of the text like this, quote, the ministers of public prayer must be the men of the congregation, not the women. Now again, it doesn't mean that the women don't have their prayer meetings and such. But he's talking about at the public gathering of the congregation as a whole. And when they pray, notice the men, they should be lifting up holy hands. Hands that are holy, set apart unto God, not given over to evil, and without wrath and doubting. Their prayers should be without wrath Lord, save us from angry prayers. I don't know if you've ever heard an angry preacher preach before a congregation, or a pray before a congregation, but it's not pretty. Save us, Lord, from angry prayers, but save us also, Lord, from doubting prayers. So again, we, we should pray with a heart that is reflecting the heart of Jesus, full of faith and love. Now, Having mentioned this aspect of the men in verse 8, I want the men to lead in congregational worship services. 
In verses 9 and 10, he's going to touch on something that women should emphasize in the gatherings of God's people. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now again, in like manner also means he's referring back to the statement that he made in verse 8. He's saying, I've spoken to the men about something, now I want to speak to the women about something. And again, I want to take pains to say, Paul's not giving an exhaustive theology of everything that should be done in a church service. It's not as if Paul were to sit down and say, well, there's a whole group of women coming to church, what do they need to know? Paul wouldn't say only this, but for whatever reason, whether it was on his mind because just of the leading of the Holy Spirit or whatever, that this is what he led himself to point out to Timothy, verse 9, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. This is how Christian women are supposed to dress, especially at their Christian meetings. And, and notice, he speaks of modest apparel. What's modest apparel? I think that the words propriety and moderation help to explain what modest apparel is. Propriety asks a question. Propriety asks, is it appropriate for the occasion? Am I overdressed? Am I underdressed? Is it going to call inappropriate attention to myself? Then moderation asks, is it moderate? Is it just too much or is it too little? Moderation is looking for a middle ground. So he says propriety, moderation, and then he speaks of braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing. These were adornments that in Paul's culture went against the principles of propriety and moderation. Now notice this. I I would definitely regard this idea, braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing. Those were cultural expressions of impropriety and immoderation in Paul's day. We're not checking women for braids at the door here. Do you understand? Why? Because in our culture, braided hair doesn't say out of propriety or out of moderation. The principles of propriety and moderation remain. How they are expressed are going to be different from culture to culture, from place to place. So don't get too hung up on the descriptions of how it works out in that culture. Look at the principles that Paul establishes here. But we must say, how we dress reflects our heart. It says something about our heart and attitude. And so here, Paul's saying, women give care to this. But especially, and notice this in verse 10, be adorned with good works. The most important adornment for a Christian woman is to be adorned with good works. If a woman is dressed in propriety and moderation, but completely lacking in good works before God, there's something missing in her outfit. She needs to put on those good works as well. Then she's, so to speak, properly dressed. And we could say that those good works, that godly life, it makes a woman more beautiful than good jewelry or fancy clothing ever could. Now this brings us to the end of verse 10. And launching on to verse 11 that we're going to get to next week really deals with one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament. And it is especially controversial today. So we're going to wait and deal with that in great depth next Wednesday. But what we've covered so far in 1 Timothy chapter 2 isn't too hard to understand. It begins with prayer. When you come together as God's people, make sure that you pray. And pray for everybody because everybody needs to be saved. God has a heart for the whole world. 
And they're only going to come to salvation through Jesus Christ. There's one mediator given between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And God gave that gift in Jesus Christ so that men could be saved. And so when we gather together, Paul says, I want the men to lead in the church service. And women need to be mindful of this idea of their own adornment before God and before man. And that'll lead into what we talk about beginning with next week. Father, we um, conclude our time in the word for this evening. Lord, with a sincere prayer for our leaders, Lord. Father, we don't have kings or emperors over us. But we do have a president, and we pray that you bless the president and give him guidance. Lord, in the words of that ancient Christian, Tertullian, we pray that you grant him his just desires, Lord. We pray for our governor in the state of California, Lord. Lord, bless him and cover him and grant him his just desires. Lord, sometimes we don't know in every aspect what's just, but Lord, you do. Lord, we pray for the mayor of our city. We pray for our county supervisors. We pray for our city council. We pray, God, that you would bless them. And Father, that each of them on the city, county, state, and Lord, national level, that all of them, Lord, would be moved by your hand. Father, that please, we might live a quiet and peaceable life And that we would have the freedom to proclaim your word, not only in this land, but beyond. Father, give us this grace. Thank you. And we pray as much as anything, Lord, for those men and women who are in leadership among them, that they, among us, Lord, that they would truly come to salvation. That they would come to trust in Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Work that, Lord, in our leaders, national, state, Lord, county, local in our cities. Do it, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, And how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.